Shrink Wrap Radio number 815. Renowned UK expert Rob Kelly, PhD, on addiction. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Radio, all the psychology you need to know when just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Dr. Rob Kelly, is a renowned addiction expert, born and raised in Manchester, UK, who is an eccentric no-holds-barred, successful therapist who places his patients first kind of man. We'll be discussing his unique work and his book, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. Now, here is the interview. Dr. Rob Kelly, welcome to Shrink Wrap Radio. Thank you, David. Great to be here. Thanks very much. Well, it's really great to have you. We're, we're going to be discussing your book, Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, and your unique approach to treating alcohol addiction. And uh, having mentioned your book, I have to say, uh, wh- what a great job you did on that book. I mean, very compelling. Often I'm not able to read very much of the books of the people that I'm that I'm interviewing, but was really drawn into your book, and in some ways, as painful as parts mm. of it are, um, or maybe even because as painful as parts of it are, very compelling and uh, almost like reading a, no- a novel in places. Mm. So I want all of our listeners and viewers to know that, and really encourage them to uh, to get your book. So, Thank you so, much. so, so let's jump into your story. And I, I have to say, it's a very complex story. Mm. It is uh, a real roller coaster of a ride, uh, and <clears throat> with with lots of really high ups <laughs> and really yes. low downs. Yes, and uh, yes. you describe yourself as somebody <clears throat> who doesn't have a medium setting. <laughs> that kind of stuck with me that it's either your full bore whatever yes. it is <clears throat> yes up or full bore negative so yeah. um, so let's jump into your story <clears throat> where did you grow up and in what sort of family i grew up in manchester in united kingdom i now live in san antonio texas just to be sure about that one but i grew up in manchester a lower working class family is what I grew into. My dad was a. My dad used to dig the roads for the gas company and, and repair the big gas mains going down the streets. It was a good job, but it's a working class job, which is fine. And my mom cleaned other people's houses, <clears throat> which uh, again was fine. So we didn't really have a lot of money around. So I was always the kid that never went on school trips because mom couldn't afford it. I was always the kid with no briefcase or satchel because the parents couldn't afford it. So. 
<clears throat> we kind of, we definitely was paycheck to paycheck. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And we definitely was, you know, that family that was hand downs from, you know, me to my brother and, and, and so on and so forth. So, but it was lots of love in that house, David. And, you know, a lot of things happened, but we were told categorically from an early age to lie. We were, we were taught how to lie. And as in my mum my was very embarrassed where she lived. So if somebody was to call like a salesman, uh, we had a, a notepad at the side of the phone and we would to give this other address, which was from the posh area of town. And I always remember that sticking in my mind that then I become the enmeshment of, of that situation. I become embarrassed about where we lived. So I'd made sure that one day we used to go playing football and one of the kids, some friends at school said, hey, Rob, my dad's going to pick us all up tonight, make it nice and easy instead of getting the bus. And I was horrified, David. In fact, I give the same address, the posh address. I had to run there 30 minutes before and wait outside this house because they come from a posh family to pick me up in the car and then go and play soccer. We come back again. He dropped me off. I would be waving like a crazy kid, you know, bye, bye, yeah. hoping they would drive off. Right. And then when they finally drove off, I, I, I ran back home to the house. So I, I can really identify with that story. Um, <clears throat> there were times when uh, I remember hiding. We were hiding from the bill collector, mm. and uh, would have to duck down beneath the the window with my mother and laying on the floor. And also in high school, the unexpected visit of some friends who wanted to pick <coughs> me up, and we'd all go to the beach, and uh, and I went through that same sort of feeling of of shock and shame and so on. So I can really identify. <coughs> what you're describing. And um, in your early school years, I, I, I think you carried with you some of that, that trauma and uh, you were a slight kid uh, and sometimes a victim of bullying mm -hmm. and, um, and kind of a shy kid in contrast mm -hmm. with <laughs> how you are now. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, was the, the learned behavior from parents. They, they, they sort of hid in the background. They were great people. And, uh, I carried that through. So the bullying took a, a toll on me. It really did. But, and I say this with a capital B, <clears throat> I have the alcoholic mind. <clears throat> so I wasn't, there's always a solution for a problem. That's what our tri uh, trials and tests. Um, and scientific research has proven. So I got my mom and dad somehow to pay. 20 cents a week so I could go and learn karate and then boxing to make sure that I never got bullied again. And that seems to be my whole life is doing the unexpected far more than people would give me credit for. Right. It always amazes me today, but that come from that. So I'd walk into school, especially when I did the bodybuilding and people go, Oh my goodness, Rob said, Oh, don't mess with him. And I would honestly look around in the early days going, who are they talking about? Because I had this massive body with the, still the mind of that scared child. Sure, sure. And, and it was very confusing. There was nobody there in my family or doctors or therapists back then that could say to me, hey, here's what's happening to you, Rob. So it, it was quite discerning for a long while. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, <clears throat> you uh, actually, you, in the... I don't know, maybe it was in middle school or, or high school where you began to 
really you were also a musician your you uh, your family got you into a family band and you you learned to play the guitar i even see a guitar behind you there yes electric guitar yes. and uh and you had quite a bit of success as a musician in this mm -hmm. very complex life of yours so the scary part and i identify with the wanting to learn martial arts i also mm. uh went into martial arts in high school uh, <clears throat> hoping to uh, to be like in the cartoons, the little guy who could throw the big guy over his shoulder, or do something magical like that. Uh, <clears throat> so I totally understand that that uh, impulse. But with your alcoholic predilections, you took it pretty far, and it was scary even to read that you developed a, a rather massive body. And and um, yeah. even got into steroids, and um, and yes. so had some degree. It sounds like of what they call roid roid rage. Yes, and uh, even began to uh, work as a bouncer and became something of a thug. Yes, working for a Manchester thug of some note. And, yes, uh, and uh, narrowly avoided prison. Uh, there was actually a, a very uh, serious crime committed by your group or your gang that the luck of the grace of God somehow that you <clears throat> stepped back just enough to miss that. It's you know it's really weird because <clears throat> people say when I go on the show they read the book. And I've never read the book. I give pieces to my wife and she kind of built this, this book. But oh my goodness. Yes. I remember that. I so remember that. And, and yeah, I should, I should be in jail. I should have got life inside probably by now because I was out of control. And the only thing that stopped me was going away to university, which again, I shouldn't have gone to, you know, by rights, but. I have ways and means and I'm very clever when it comes to manipulating people and, and places and, you know, situations around me. But I think if I would have stayed on in the same house on that, uh, that's, you know, a couple of blocks, we call it an estate of about 6,000 houses, because that's the time when heroin started to hit really bad and, you know, crack cocaine and, and, and all my friends are dead because of heroin overdoses. So I think I scraped through that. I scraped through by God's grace, not being involved in the armed robbery and everyone went to prison uh, for some unknown reason. It seems like God, and if you don't believe in God, guys, you know, universe, Uncle John, whatever you believe in, but God <laughs> kept me away because I truly believe that he had a plan for me because my life doesn't make sense. How no, can someone from the, from the projects... Go to an esteemed school. I mean, that, that doesn't happen. You, you got into Oxford against <clears throat> yes. all expectations. Yes. Oxford University. And, uh, and, and so you were born with a brain that was a real mixed bag. Yes. Of, on the one hand, this, uh, this terrible addiction, and on the other hand, uh, incredible native intelligence. Yes, and uh, <clears throat> smart enough to get into Oxford, very prestigious place, and even to eventually get a PhD in psychology mm. there. Mm. 
Yes, it was. But I, I have to put this out, and I try it all the time as a disclaimer, is my my friend's dad around 14, 15 was a Freemason. And Freemason in England is very, very secretive, not like it is over here where the signs on buildings are very secretive. So one day he asked me to go down. He was looking for an organ player for a year, special occasion. And I was very, I was 15, uh, 16, and they, they asked me to go in and play. So I played, but before I could go into the lodge and play, they had to make me a Freemason of something. So I, I, that's how I got into the opportunity to go to Oxford. It was a friend of a friend because I'd been in this huge favor or something playing the organ. Yeah. But yeah, it was, um, yeah, yeah. I, I got in there, but I excelled when, when I'm put in, in, into certain, into certain situations, I excel and, I'm usually one at the back of the class going, Robert, will you just take notice, please? Because I, and, and I've done a lot of studying around that and I've done a lot of research around that and I know fully what it is today. And, uh, I truly believe that the alcoholic brain is different to the normal brain. Yeah. And when we are put into situations and circumstances where our alcohol disappears or we take a different path, um, we exceed like crazy. You, I often tell friends of mine, you know, if if you take me to the local knee surgeon and you put me in there with no medical experience, let me watch him for 10 days, I could do the operation. And people freak out. No, you, no, I could. I literally could. Because I have to see something to do it. I can't. I'm not great studying something in, in literature. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Amazing. And... The other amazing thing is that, you know, your alcoholism progressed from age nine, mm-hmm. which is amazing. <clears throat> what was the initial impact, say, at age nine? Did it feel good? Did you feel anything in your body or brain? Did, did it feel like something locked in? Oh, yes. Or did it take time <clears throat> to develop that? Immediately. I, I often ask alcoholics that I work with, do you remember your first drink? Oh, yeah, I was, I was four. And normal people don't do that, by the way, guys. But yeah, I remember I was stood on stage playing with my musical family, auntie and uncle. <clears throat> I was the bass player and we played a first set and there was hundreds of people there. And I was so nervous as a child. And when I came off, I started crying and says, I can't go back on. I can't go back on. And my, my uncle gave me this gold looking liquid and I drank it down and my whole world changed right there and then. I knew that this is the stuff that's going to make me a champion. And I went back on for the second half of that show. And I, I think, was absolutely, I felt amazing. I felt like a, a good bass player. I felt like a superstar. Yeah. And they did that to me for a long time. Yeah. So it was, in one way, it got you through because it gave you what's called Dutch courage. Yes. Uh, uh, to overcome the inner <laughs> frightened child who was ashamed, embarrassed, feeling inadequate and all of that. And you could really come out with this uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, this other personality that was confident and and very competent and successful. As a matter of fact, I seem to recall that uh, Oxford's not an inexpensive place and that oh, you were, wow. you were yeah. able to, to pay your way through from the money you were making as a musician. I did again. I, I've always wanted to be a musician, as you know, since the early ages of about four or five when my uncle used to come home and he was playing songs all week, preparing for the weekend's gigs. And I just loved the guitar, the way he 
oh, it was just amazing. So I knew somewhere I was going to be a musician, hopefully professional in a band, which we tried many times. But I got into session work. I mean, we we would load a, a, a van at four o'clock in the afternoon with all this equipment. We'd drive four hours. We'd play the gig. We'd get minimal money. We'd stack the bag. We'd come out, and we'd come out with, I can't remember the money, but let's say it was £10, £20 each. I Somebody invited me to a, a studio to say, can you do a track for me? And I'm like, okay. So I went down. It was actually a 10cc studio just outside Manchester called Strawberry Studios. And I went in and I did what looked like or sounded like 30 minutes. If that, they put a script in front, bam, 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 bam. I'd do the, I'd do the score, pass it back to them. I walked out and they gave me 65 pound or something. And I, all of a sudden, an alcoholic brain again. Oh my God. Why am I doing all that work for minimal money when I can sit in the studio, nice warm, you know, a nice Coca Cola or beer and play this and get five or six times the money? So that, that kind of kicked off drinking pretty regularly decided to to uh to look at this magazine once while and in the magazine i think it was uh, melody maker was an advertisement for the bass player abbey road to play with bands that didn't have the bass player and i applied for it and seven auditions later i got the job yeah but it's funny dave i don't know whether you remember but in the book but when i went to the first one i was so scared that i had a beer outside the first one went home waited for the mail to come opened it got a second one so obviously i have two beers when the second audition by the time i got the seven one i had seven beers before i went in i don't really remember going in i don't remember the session i got home and i thought i blew it and a week later the letter come to say i got the position so what does that tell can tell me the alcoholic that when you drink, amazing things happen. Uh-huh. Yeah. And indeed, they were happening. <laughs> um, I can understand making that connection. <clears throat> so your your disease, and you do uh, uh, identify with the disease model, pro- was progressive. And uh, it the alcohol and, uh, and, uh, and steroids and so on, thankfully not cocaine, I gather, and not... Heroin. Somehow you missed some of those heavier drugs. I um, missed the heroin, but I did take the cocaine. You did. Yes, I did. Yeah, so so uh, this addiction was progressing to the point where, by the time you were in college, uh, at, at university, you were pretty much a full-on addict. And you described different levels of addiction or different kinds mm. of addicts. I don't remember <clears throat> the distinctions. Take us through that. Well, I've, I've obviously learned this through studying in neuroscience, which is what I specialize in only on addiction, now, not, not generally. <clears throat> it's the progressive illness obviously gets worse and worse and worse. It never gets any better. And the only way to describe that in layman's terms, guys, if you're watching, this will be amazing. If you're listening, I'll do my best, is what happens is the neural pathways, and there are billions in the head, so the learn, neural pathways are learning, you know, a thought pattern, uh, the basal ganglia spins it around repetition, strength, and confirms anything, uh, i.e. a pilot needs 10,000 hours in the air before he can fly a commercial jet. So neural pathways are built. Let's turn, ride a car, drive a bike. So let's say this neural pathway, which I have a brilliant video, is for driving a car. So we get into it, it feels very big. After a week, it's better. And then after a couple of months, boom, we can pass our test and away we go. But when I go to a foreign country for a couple of years, in a right-hand vehicle driving on the left-hand side of the road, what happens is neural pathways, it diminishes. 
Okay. So when I come back in two years time, I can't just jump in the car and take off. It takes me a few minutes to reconnect that neural pathway again. That makes sense. We all do that with stuff. Now with the alcoholic, what we found and the reason why it's a progressive illness is this self-sabotaging set of neural pathways start off until I'm full blown alcoholic. But if I go into treatment or try and come off it for a week, a month, a year, that self-sabotaging thought pattern neural pathway does not diminish like the driving car one did it stays there and that's why many people say after a year's sobriety they go straight back to where they left off because the self-harming neural pathways self-sabotaging is waiting for you and it kicks off again so that's why and the hypothalamus of course which tells us to drink after we cross over from abusing to alcoholically it's a predisposition guys you can't drink yourself to becoming an alcoholic i want to put that out there so, yeah, definitely disease, definitely uh, uh, progressive. And in my experience with our with our uh, 30 years under our belt, uh, we, we think it's the number one killer, alcohol and drugs. It's, it's not getting reported, though, unfortunately. There's not true reports when people pass away. It goes down as liver failure. It goes down as car crash. It goes down as many other things. Yeah. But alcohol is damaging more people than you think, guys out there. Believe me. Yeah, yeah. One thing I learned from your book, uh, mm. uh, you, you clarify the term blackout, and I always mm. assumed that a blackout meant that that you passed out, and we mm. know that people sometimes do pass out from drinking, but um, but you describe you, you describe it in different terms. I'll let you do that. Yeah, I, I thought the same, David, when I first came around. <clears throat> A blackout is, it, it happens with alcoholics only and heavy drinkers, abusers. Uh, if you drink a little bit too much, you won't remember. But what happens is you are very functional during that blackout. So you don't pass out and you don't go unconscious. What happens is you continue drinking and you go around usually nighttime doing your stuff and you may do some crazy things or upset somebody or get into an argument. You come back home, you don't remember going to bed and next morning you got up and the same thing happened. You go, oh my God, what did I do last night? And then you found out you're doing horrible things and it's kind of the brain shutting off. You're going, okay, yeah. we're intoxicated level now. There's nothing we can do, but we on and on and on. And that's a blackout. I, most people have a blackout once a night, say a night a week or a night a month. I had blackouts for several weeks at a time because I would con continually drink because I didn't like hangovers. And the only way not to get a hangover was two ways, not to drink, and that wasn't going to happen, or to keep drinking. So for several months, if not years, I was constantly intoxicated at different levels. Yeah. Yeah, I learned uh, in uh, my <laughs> college years, I guess, that I didn't like hangovers either. And, uh, and fortunately, I didn't have that brain chemistry or genetics that mm. set me up. You know, I, I, I was able to say, whoa, this is horrible. I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm. And, you know, and I'm somebody who can drink a drink or two occasionally, long periods of time go by where I don't have any kind of alcohol. Mm. We have alcohol in our home, bottles of wine and so on, mm. vodka, and some of it is untouched for years. It's <laughs> So it's a mm. very different story. And, and uh, yes. be because I was blessed not to have that, that the 
brain or genetic disposition to to be uh, pulled in that direction. Um, and so, uh, but your experience was you were almost in a kind of fugue state mm. where uh, you didn't know what you were doing. And, mm. and it turned out that, you know, we haven't talked about your relationships with girls mm. progressing to women, which uh, you had a lot of... <clears throat> A lot of very mixed experiences again, yes. Yes. but culminating in a, in a horrible situation where um, where in one of these blackout states, you assaulted your wife, you you uh, stabbed her. Mm. Uh, the the authorities were called. They took your. You had two daughters at that point, and. <clears throat> They declared you to be an unfit parent, mm -hmm. and that was really a big bottom. And you would think with that bottom, that would be the end of it. But, you would think so. To the normal person, oh, my goodness, how can you do No, not me, unfortunately. After all that happened, I continued drinking. I fled to Spain until charges were dropped. Uh, she was only in hospital for two or three days. There were stitches, but there was no serious harm. Um, but she was first pushing for attempted murder and manslaughter. Um, but that was trot in the end. And, uh, <clears throat> back in the day in England, if they, if they, if the person dropped the assault charges, then they, they couldn't take it to court. Uh, whereas over here, if somebody comes to a house, someone is going to court over domestic violence. So I came back from Spain and that's when she took the kids. I got them back for a night. I was intoxicated for a couple of days with them and then, then they took them off me. So yes, you would have thought, <clears throat> but, I went back in the kitchen and started drinking again. And that's why my eldest daughter, three, age three, said to me three things when she's, when the authorities and mom and mother-in-law and child services took them off me. And she said three things when she walked down the pathway towards the gate. And they were, daddy, daddy, please don't go. After I've left them for two days with no food or diapers changed. And then halfway down, she turned again. I'm crying. The policeman's crying. It was just a horrible, sad state of affairs. And she turned around one more time. He says, Daddy, Daddy, please get better. And as they got to this big iron gate, they opened it. And she turned around one more time and looked at me and said, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it for my children. I couldn't do it for my parents, my wife, my friends. I couldn't even do it for me because I was in full-blown alcoholism where my hypothalamus is telling me to drink alcohol when it tells other people to drink water and eat food to survive. This is very important. It comes to alcoholism. It tells me to drink alcohol. So from there, I went to my parents. The house uh, was taken over. She took over the house or foreclosed. I can't remember. And from my parents to friends, from friends to acquaintances. And in a matter of about two and three weeks, I'm homeless. I have lost everything. Nobody wants to talk to me. When I try and phone home, they put the phone down and I'm stuck in the center of Manchester on a bench um, for the first night going, where the hell did that just go wrong? And you had you had lots of money at that point. Yes. Right? You had actually yes. had started a telecom company. Yes. And so it wasn't just the music. You were also making really good money as a businessman. And here you are now homeless. Mm. <clears throat> and um, later in the book, we you come to realize that um, that you suffer from PTSD, mm. and you write very uh, movingly 
<clears throat> about the trauma of being, and, and I live in a fear of this. I mean, I've never been homeless, but I, I have to say it's in the back of my mind, you know, that, whoa, this could happen to me because we see so many homeless people on the street these days. <clears throat> um, how traumatic it is to be homeless, to not have a home, mm. to not have resources, to not have money. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so... <laughs> I don't. I don't think people realize when, when they hear that story, or anybody <clears throat> who's um, suffering terrible that ends up on the streets, is the psychological effect of abandonment is the worst thing in the world, and the helplessness, and there's nobody to turn to, and nobody's protecting you, and nobody can speak up for you. You're just there on a a daily basis trying to survive, and if, if that's bad enough, I mean, everybody has a home, everybody has family to a certain degree, and everyone else, someone they can go to. I had nobody and these guys around me. And David, I met scientists, I met doctors, I met engineers that are living on the streets because they went through some bad luck or got into alcoholism and, and couldn't get out of it. So <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was a very lonely time. And I, and I was on there for over a year, you know, living oh, on the streets. Yeah. And if I was to be real honest, David, I have to say that after about eight or nine months, I got very comfortable on them streets. And that scared me. Yeah, I, I've heard that, that <clears throat> people who try to intervene in, in homelessness, that's one of the issues that they deal with, is that uh, the people would rather be in uh, on the streets than in the kind of shelter that might be provided for them. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. <clears throat> so... Later on, um, your wife divorces you, and uh, time goes by, and you you begin to uh, kind of have the feeling you fool yourself. You talk about how the alcoholic brain will feed them me unrealistic messages, mm -hmm. and you begin to mm -hmm. to uh, <clears throat> cotton to the idea of I need to get married again, and that'll straighten me up. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. What, how, what crazy thinking is that all about? But uh, that didn't work, by the way. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, <clears throat> I don't know. It was just, <clears throat> I have to say, and that's just a, a brief summary, that if, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do exactly the same because what I what I realized, you see, when, when I was suffering from alcoholism, nobody really knew anything about it. So my doctor who alcoholism is the only self-diagnosed illness in the world. Nobody can diagnose you. 10 DUIs do not make you an alcoholic. There's a fine line between abusing alcohol and, and, and uh, in that uh, slim pocket that says you're an alcoholic. And I went to the doctor, go to them 12-step meetings, and go to self-help groups, and nobody knew. So when I was on the streets, it intrigued me that nobody had an answer because I'd been into the Priory, which is the most expensive um, treatment center in Britain and they did not, I drank on the way home. So I had this time thinking on the streets is why can't I stop? Why have I damaged my family? Why do I want to kill myself on a daily basis? Because I tried suicide six or seven times and on two or three occasions it worked and my heart stopped. Why was I doing this? And then one morning I was stood outside of a liquor store. It was five, six, I can't remember what time it was, very early hours in a vest, a pair of shorts, and a pair of flip-flops. 
and it was snowing and I was sweating profusely and I was shaking and I had a headache and I felt horrible, which meant from my experience that I'm going into the DTs. So if I don't get alcohol in my body within at least 45 minutes, I'm going to end up in hospital. The guy sees me. He knows I'm an alcoholic. He sneaks me in one morning, closes the door behind because he's not supposed to sell alcohol until 10 p.m. And now it's about 6 a.m. And I remember this day, and this was the game changer for me, is I was shaking. I could hardly hold the 10 pounds in my hands. I put it on the counter and he put the bottle on the counter and I grabbed the handle of the bottle and this was my reaction. <laughs> my sweating stopped, my headache went away, the shivers and the shaking stopped and automatically I was in a great mood. I'd not even opened the cap. I looked at the alcohol, I looked at the shopkeeper, I looked back at the alcohol and I thought, darn it, it's not the alcohol. And that set off my studying and I promised to myself, and God, if I ever get off the streets, I spend the rest of my life studying absolutely intense studying around the brain and alcoholism, especially. I also work on addiction and trauma, but I was intrigued by them in the early days. You also, in your efforts to uh, to get free of of your alcoholism, uh, you describe relapsing, frequent relapses. <clears throat> Talk to us about that. Why is it that people relapse? Well, there's a certain amount of things you need to know as being an alcoholic, and that is that the mind left alone to its own entity <clears throat> will drive alcoholics to uh, drink every time. So we need a strict routine. We definitely need a spiritual experience or contact. There's no doubt about it. And we need to change the way I think. And then we call it a psychic change, psychic of the mind change. So we need to change the neural pathways. What happens if we don't? Obviously, the hypothalamus comes in and the basal ganglia, and all of a sudden we find ourselves drinking. So here's the important part and the mystery part. If you ask an alcoholic, why did you relapse? He can give you a thousand excuses, but not one reason. And the reason he can't do that, it's beyond my capability, my mental capability and capacity to not drink when that thought pattern comes to drink. So what we did then is we, we looked at an alcoholic, we followed several around with their permission, we paid them, and each one of them relapsed. There were chronic relapses, and then we'd monitor them to the store, buy the alcohol, drink the alcohol. We did all that. Now, <clears throat> the most intoxicating part of that whole scenario was the drive to the liquor store. So it automatically tells you that this is not a choice, alcoholism. Now, abusing is... Don't get me wrong, and you won't be able to tell the difference if you don't have any training, but the alcoholic has no choice whether he drinks or not, unless the pre uh, aforementioned things need to happen, he will relapse yeah. because it's beyond our control. Yeah. Now, somehow, <clears throat> and you went through, you know, posh treatment center and mm. other kinds of uh, rehab situations, and uh, at some point, you succeeded and uh, normally i think when people go to aa they say uh, my name is rob kelly and i'm a recovering alcoholic but the conclusion of your book you say my name is rob kelly and i'm a recovered alcoholic mm. i don't mm. know if anybody ever goes to a aa meeting i mean i think aa is skeptical of the idea of full recovery well, there are parts that are, I, I believe, and there are 
There is a great big, I call it big book in, in the 12 step rooms. And that is a book that is, is far more advanced than it is. Talks about neuroscience and stuff like that. Um, so I always explain something that I, I don't drink alcohol today. So I don't have the mental obsession. And because I don't drink alcohol, my body doesn't crave for it. So the mental capacity is gone. So therefore I've recovered from alcoholism. Now I've not recovered from the traits and I'm not cured. Because if I stop doing what I need to do, I'm going to relapse again. But the definition in the Oxford English is where the big book got their words from, the guys that wrote that, is to gain one's health and state of mind. That's all recovered means. So there's no cure for alcoholism, but there's no cure for food poisoning or the common cold. But when I had food poisoning, my my, uh, doctor said, uh, you know, here's the pills, here, drink lots of water, let me give you a few steps to make sure you don't get food poisoned. I've never had food poisoning since, so I've recovered from that food poisoning. I've recovered from alcoholism, but I'll still be an alcoholic because I have the mind that took me to all sorts of different traits and self-sabotage. So, big statement here. <clears throat> Alcohol, and we can back this up, we can back everything I've set up, uh, has 1% to do with alcoholism. I didn't have a, I never had a drinking problem, David. I had a thinking problem. That was my deal. Once the mind and the brain, two different entities are sorted out and with treatment that really works, alcohol diminishes and becomes de minimis as a whole. Um, and then we become absolutely amazing human beings. All my staff are recovered alcoholics and addicts. Um, and we just go on to live life as we should live life because we, we're the only people that get two lives in one lifetime. We can get the first one, and if we're lucky to get through that, God's God's grace, then we have this second one. So, you know, why shouldn't why shouldn't we laugh? We we have recovered, you know. And I, I love that word. And many, 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 many people get hot under the collar every time I say it. But when I explain about the food poisoning and the common cold, it does make sense to them, which is uh, which is awesome. Well, what do you do that's different than other? recovery programs, you run a recovery program there in Texas. Um, what is it that other programs don't understand about alcoholism? They will concentrate on the alcohol. Let's just stop you drinking. That's got nothing to do with the disease as a whole. So we concentrate, we use neuroscience a lot. We use neuro-linguistic program known as NLP. We use brain spotting and uh, we use common psychology for the program. And uh, the brain spotting, I, not a lot of people will know this, but the eyes are an extension of the brain. They're actually an extension, the part of the brain. They're not separate. It's not connected by the optical nerve, as many people think. If you run it on Google, you'll be amazed to find out. So by looking into the eyes with brain spotting, you can actually go straight into the subconscious brain and pull that trauma out. So this is about trauma. Trauma is the gateway drug. End of story. And especially if you're born with the predisposition, as soon as you take alcohol, because you will eventually, unless you're guided away from a very early age, <clears throat> then you will fall under that, that category, which means you're on a ticking time clock before you die. So we don't concentrate on the alcohol. We concentrate on neuroscience, the brain, the central nervous system, the trauma. Um, we will go to any length to make sure that you recover from this. And if you need you know, a hand up, we will pay for different things for you to give you a hand up. We believe in you. We, we change. We remap brains. We, you know, 10 years ago, the medical fraternity found out, and I'm sure you know, David, is uh, neuroplasticity, that, that you can mold, remold the brain. And that's what we do. 
and um, were very successful. So when I do the studying around treatment centers, and there are some amazing treatment centers, David, as me and you know, but when I do the average research, it's around 5 to 10% success rate. Well, we're sitting at 97%. In fact, we're the only company in the world that offer a money-back guarantee should you relapse while following our program after you've left up to a five years. So wow. we are definitely different. We're definitely passionate. Um, you have yeah. a, you have a four-man team around you at any, any time, 24 hours a day. And I only take on four patients at any one time. Uh, so wow. it's kind of a concierge, knowledgeable neuroscience right. approach to, to alcoholism. Yeah. Speaking of neuroscience, I want to quote one sentence that you hear that's uh, leaped out at me. I estimate from my experience in working with alcoholics and research that they're about 7.3 seconds once the conscious brain thinks about drinking for a person to decide to take corrective action. And so that made me wonder if you're familiar with the work of Bruce Ecker on memory reconciliation. I am, I am uh, yes. Yeah, so. Definitely. And and that 7.3 seconds is an average, obviously, anything from 4 to 10. So we had to put a number on it when we were doing our research. So we just called it 7.3 because 7 is my lucky number and 3 was my daughter's lucky number. It's 7.3. It's around there. But you can literally change your mindset within that time. So if you are going to self-sabotage, do something silly or made a bad mistake, what we do, and it's really easy, is we get a rubber band on our non-dominant hand and we snap yes. that whenever it is, and that will re-divert the neural pathways, but it has to be done. And the other thing that we use it for is if you are going to do anything, like, oh, God, I must I must uh, uh, wash the dishes or you know, I must go and do the lawn, that 7.3 seconds also applies because once you get out of that 7.3 seconds time frame, I'll do it tomorrow. You never do it if you don't make, you know, a motion to get there. So if you're going to the gym, you know, get up, get your bag out, put the sneakers in and put them by the door in the first 7.3 seconds. And your success will start coming. Then the reward system in the brain. So we need four chemicals in the brain, especially the alcoholic to make them happy. We need the endorphins, get to the gym, work out for 20 minutes. We need the dopamine, the reward system, complement three people every day. Your dopamine is releasing to your brain. The serotonin is a social belonging. So we've got some backfire from the from the disease that was flying around. So social belonging and sunlight. And, of course, we have oxytocin, which is the cuddling uh, hormone. But if you don't, and I say don't, get out for that serotonin, then you will become depressed. And what normally happens when you get depressed is you go to the doctor and they'll give you an SSR. So you take the SSR and you get back to normal. My question has always been to the medical fraternity is why is our, S why is our serotonin low in the first place? Because we're not doing what we're supposed to do as human beings. Most of us work from home these days. Most of us don't socialize. You've only got look at our research on death row, which states that, and you, you probably get this, David, because of the, the, the book you wrote on serial killers, um, which I love, by the way. Zodiac. This is a Zodiac. Oh, thank uh, you. Is that it's a, it's a let, let me stop there for a second. Remind me, I'm on death row, uh, but the book okay. is amazing. Uh, I've studied you for for years. I've I've read you for years, and uh, I just absolutely adore the ab the wonderful and huge effect you've had the, uh, on the psychology industry as a whole. I, I I just think you have a genius mind. I really do. And some of the stuff that I read and I watch and I see and I I hear about you as 
has made me the person I am today. It really wow. has. Wow. So that led me into the research. I would have loved to have gone on, on you know, the, the uh, psychological test from the serial killers. I wasn't so lucky. But it turns out that probably six or seven out of ten people that actually get to the chair for the execution or the needle are, are partially insane. That's because of the isolation. So we isolate as, as, a, as a generation now most of the time. We don't get that so, social contact. So that's where many people are falling sick and falling ill. Is I don't think, and I don't know whether you agree with this, David, that we haven't seen the proof, the full fallout from COVID yet. I agree. I all the isolation. Yeah. I've been concerned yeah. about that and uh, bringing that up in, in lots of my interviews and asking people's take on it. So you've just mm. given me your take on it. Uh, we're sort of at the wrap-up phase here. I wonder if there's anything else that that you would like <coughs> to share or invite you to share your uh your website in case people want to uh, contact you or find out more. Excellent. So as you know, guys, if you're watching, I spell my name with two B's, R-O-B-B-K-E-L-L-Y.com is the website. Just put Dr. Rob Kelly into any search engine, you'll find me. Jump on the website. The book is on there. And the only reason I mention it is every single $9 goes back out into the community for one parent families. We give away 150000 It's like 10000 from the book and the rest we give uh, back into the community. So jump on there. And I really, I really want to put this out there because guys, if you're sat at home and you don't think you're worthy and if you don't think you're going to amount to anything and you're just in that headspace, first of all, I want to apologize to you because somebody's put that there. We are born with million dollar minds. Why are you hanging around 10 cent minds? So here's the deal. If you're in that place where it's either suicide or you know, you give me a call direct on my phone number, 214 I'll give you a 10-minute pep talk that will change your life. And if I don't, I'll send you $100. How's that? Just for your time. Because this is about giving back, and this is about being kind to the next human being. And uh, I just wish somebody had done that to me, but I want to be that guy that, that lends a hand out to you. Wow. That's an incredible offer. Uh Dr. Rob Kelly, I really want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Rap Radio. Absolutely. My, the pleasure was all mine. I get to meet you at last. That's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Wonderful for me, too. I was unexpectedly delighted by my interview with Dr. Rob Kelly, author of Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking. Why unexpected? Having read the book, I discovered I would be dealing with a very strong personality who during the worst of his alcoholic years had been a professional thug in Manchester, England, one who, by his own admission, had barely stepped back from committing a felony that would have put him behind bars for many years, one who earned a black belt in karate and had been not only addicted to alcohol but also used steroids and bodybuilding to bulk up to better beat up people, one who in a blind rage stabbed his wife and fled to Spain for months to avoid arrest, one whom authorities judged was an unfit father to his two young daughters. He's also one who was able to build a couple of businesses from which I surmised he was used to being in charge. So yes, 
These facts did give me pause for thought. I feared that he might take over the conversation, making it hard for me to get a word in edgewise. But this was all projection on my part. Catastrophization? I was giving too much weight to the dark side of the ledger. We turned out to have a really delightful conversation. Before I even turned on the recorder, he immediately won me over by letting me know I have long been one of his heroes, that he is a longtime fan of shrink-wrap radio, and that he has also read and admired my book in which I profiled the Zodiac serial killer. He even goes so far as to label me a genius. He did later say that alcoholics tend to be master manipulators. Well, whether that was manipulation or not, and I don't think it was, I have to say, it really worked on me, made my day. So let me rush to emphasize the positive side of the Rob Kelly ledger. While he is unfortunate to have been born with the genetics and brain chemistry to predispose him to alcohol addiction, he also strikes me as something of a genius himself. Consider that at nine years of age, he learned to play guitar and performed with his parents in a family band. As the years go by and his musicianship grows, he gains considerably in confidence. More time goes by, and he's learned to play electric bass with such excellence that he becomes a regular session musician at Abbey Road Studios. Furthermore, consider that he is bright enough to be accepted into Oxford University, where he excels so much that he's able to go on to earn a neuroscience PhD there. And he's able to pay all his Oxford expenses with money earned as a musician. Amazingly, he is pulling these accomplishments off while at the same time having become a full-blown alcoholic. Similarly, he somehow manages to start a successful telecom company. So that brain of his is quite a mixed bag, on the one hand setting him up for a horrible life of alcoholic abuse, blackouts, and homelessness, and at the same time, major successes in academics, music, and business. After many years of attempted sobriety, through rehab programs, relapses, and suicide attempts, Dr. Rob Kelly is happily married, reconciled with his two daughters, engaged in neuropsychological research, and operates a model rehab program in San Antonio, Texas. If you are struggling with addiction or in a relationship with an addict or work as a therapist, this is a must-read book. Not surprisingly, Rob is an excellent writer. The narrative of his struggles pulls you in and won't let you go, much like a good novel. Here are some excerpts. Quote, As the authorities trundled down the path with my children, my eldest turned to me and says, Daddy, Daddy, please don't go. A few steps further, she turned and says, Daddy, Daddy, please get better. Then, in one final turn, the last pleading words uttered by my beautiful, innocent child were, Daddy, Daddy, please stop drinking. Close quote. He goes on to say, quote, 
But I couldn't stop drinking. That was the problem. That was always the problem. Once the switch clicked in my brain, I self-destructed and only alcohol would satisfy me. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, but this time that gut-wrenching feeling in my stomach was because my sickness had taken it a step further. This time the madness involved my two beautiful and innocent babies. Why do I do this? What's wrong with me? What kind of monster lurks inside me? Why would I put my children's lives in danger? What other than insanity could explain this irrational behavior? It must be insanity. I must be insane. Close quote. Of himself, he writes, quote, I wrote this in the same way I spread the great news of recovery, passionate, powerful, and most of all, unforgettable. The fact is, once you meet me, you'll never forget me. From spiky hair to crazy trainers, I make no apologies for myself. Today, my job is to make people understand that whatever you are going through, it's going to be okay. I've mellowed quite a bit from my younger me, but I'm still streetwise and I don't take any shit from anybody, a trait that I learned from my time on the streets. I'm fully equipped with all the tools given to me by God to fight toe-to-toe with my disease and will do the same for my clients. Close quote. He gives a strong plug for the progress that is being made by our growing understanding of neuroscience. Quote, there is a growing recognition that the treatment model is outdated. More alternative methods focused on peer recovery and neuroscience are working their way into mainstream treatment. Close quote. Once again, the book is Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking by Rob Kelly, Ph.D., whose website can be found at www.robkelly.com. And Rob is spelled R-O-B-B. Hi, Dr. Dave. My name is Hannah Bogan, and I'm a speech-language pathologist at Communication Works in Oakland, California, so right in your neck of the woods. I recently discovered your podcast, and I am so incredibly thankful to have found them. I've actually devoured nine in the last week. Uh, I am, although I'm a speech-language pathologist, I, I actually don't specialize in speech and language disorders as much as social cognitive and social regulation disorders. I work with preschoolers through young adults, helping them with executive functioning challenges and really any difficulties they might have that make it hard for them to accomplish their goals in a, in a social context. I absolutely love your interviews and your podcasts. And I can't tell you how much they inform both my professional and personal lives. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Dave, for the commitment that you have to the broad field of psychology, and especially a huge thank you from those of us who seem to have a foot in psychology and a foot in some other related field. I'll definitely be becoming an ongoing contributor to your programming. Thanks, Dr. Dave. Thank you, Hannah Bogan. Thanks for taking the step to make yourself part of the Paying Shrink Wrap radio community. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to today's guest, Dr. Rob Kelly, 
author of Daddy, Daddy, Please Stop Drinking, and owner of a pioneering rehab center in San Antonio, Texas, for an interview that was both delightful and informative. Next week, my guest will be licensed clinical social worker Ken Benoit, speaking about his book, Shame, Pride, and Relational Trauma, Concepts, and Psychotherapy. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.